0: You are listening to The Regent College Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Nick Corbin.
0: And I'm Claire Perini.
1: And welcome back to The Regent College Podcast.
0: Friends, today we had a conversation with Dr. Cindy Alders, who's the library director and associate professor of the history of Christianity here at Regent College. And we had a great conversation with her around the spiritual lives of children from her research and writing on particularly the 18th century, the 1700s, um, and her look at in, in England in particular, and the way that the understanding of Children's faith and the way they understand God was um, was expressed in in various artifacts that we can find, uh, in, and that not that we're it's not necessarily adults talking about children, but actually children speaking about their own experiences of faith and the sort of how we've then inter- interpreted that through the discovery of them in archives and various other things.
1: Yeah, Cindy talked about the child centered perspective and how. Uh, we can actually delve into children's writings, journals, doodles, different things and, and kind of unearth actually how children understood themselves mm-hmm. and their identity in Christ and within their context as well. And it was so neat to hear as well about the first Bibles being written in the 18th century, Sunday school starting up and kind of uh, just a shift in, in the 18th century for children's formation and spirituality.
0: Mm -hmm. So we hope you enjoy yet another conversation with Dr. Cindy Alders. Cindy, welcome back to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about kind of children and spirituality in particular and their expression of faith over time in the period that interests you most as a historian, yeah. but tell mm-hmm. us a little bit, how did you become interested in the historical study of children and childhood? Have you always, in, have you always been interested in that?
2: How did that come about? Yeah, thanks. Um, I became interested in the study of historical children during my doctoral studies and really kind of quite by accident. Um, I was working with some large family archives, uh, mostly from the 18th century. That is my period as historian say. Mm -hmm. And I kept finding fragments of children's manuscripts um, sort of tucked around the edges of things. And um, they were so poignant and sometimes really funny, um, like just delightful. Mm. So I was able to work some of that into my doctoral thesis, but I also took photos whenever I encountered a child's hand in the archive, um, hoping to use them for a future project mm. on children and religion, um, and I've been working on that book project for a few years now. Cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Like you took a photo of their handwritten or yeah. their actual. They had like made a hand. Oh,
2: <laughs> oh, sorry. What did I say? <laughs> so in their hand. When you saw, when you said, you,
1: yeah, you saw
2: children's hands in it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's what, writing historians say to refer to like somebody's handwriting. Right. It's in not their, their hands. actual handwriting. Yeah. Just to so, clarify. Children's writing. <laughs> right. Um yeah. in the archive. Yeah.
1: I'm not as familiar with the <laughs> historical terminology that you would sorry. Use uh, in...
2: do call me on it. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> I'm not always aware. That's
1: <laughs> good. <laughs> uh I, I would love to dive into more of the history specifically uh in the seventeen hundreds, but before we dive into that, maybe if you could just give us a little reflection on specifically the passage in matthew 18 where jesus uh talks about the children prioritizes children and places a child in their midst that they must become like a little child i wonder if you could just share like what's the significance of this why did jesus do this what what is significant about placing a child in their midst
2: yeah yeah um thank you so jesus said this um to his disciples in response to their question, who is the greatest Mm. in the kingdom of heaven? Mm. Um, And in Matthew 18, 2, we read, so he called a child, Jesus called a child who he put among them, Mm. them being his disciples. He put his child Mm. among the Mm. disciples. And this verse is at the heart of the child theology movement. Um, which emerged in Australia about Good fifteen things. years right. ago. Do you know what? Makes you don't, sense. Yeah,
0: you never, you never know what could come out of
2: Australia, yeah. and that, that's
0: not what I would pick. But. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it did come out of Australia, but it's now a global movement—the mm. child theology movement—and it hopes that theological reflection on that verse hmm. can inform the mission and ministry of the whole church, mm. and not just work with children. Right. So Jesus called the child into the midst of a theological discussion, mm-hmm. um, and those within the child theology movement attempt to do the same thing. So they ask, how does the presence of children influence any theological discussion? Mm-hmm. And part of what I take from these verses in Matthew is that children, whatever their age, are not only active participants um, in the unfolding story, but also essential for a true reading of the gospel, wow. mm-hmm. understanding the identity and person of Jesus Christ, modeling the way of the cross, mm. and representing um, really the radical nature of ecclesial community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in all of our serious thinking about church and theology, um, children are often marginalized and mm-hmm. unseen. Mm-hmm. Yet, Jesus put a child. In the very center of a theological debate, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and I think this is also a lesson for us in humility, mm-hmm. and of drawing those at the margins into the very center right. of our personal work and church lives, and into the very center of our theology. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, so helpful.
0: Yeah, see as well. It's not. It's not sort of Jesus isn't drawing them into. Teach us how to do church. Like that's an element of it, but it's actually no into the theological conversations. The way that they think and process Mm -hmm. and understand the things of God Mm -hmm. is crucial to our own kind of formation as the people of God. Mm -hmm. You know, like that it's not just how do we teach adult things in a child in a way that a child can understand, but actually how do we actually have the child's voice in the conversation? Yes. It's a a totally different thing. It's flipping.
2: Yeah. It's flipping the lens. Mm -hmm.
0: So you said, so you're saying that this kind of this idea of child theology emerged. In Australia. In Australia. About mm-hmm. 15 years ago. Yeah. So in terms of the, the historical study of childhood, when did that emerge? And do we have anything other than what adults wrote down in order for us to understand childhood?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the history of childhood as an academic discipline is relatively new and it's usually dated to the publication of a book called Centuries of Childhood, mm. which is written by Philip Aries, Um in 1960, it was published in 1960 really? in French, and uh, in English translation as "Centuries of Childhood" in 1962. Hmm, not that long ago. Yeah. So not that long mm-hmm. ago is a relatively new mm-hmm. new discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, in his book "Centuries of Childhood," Aries made the controversial claim that childhood was created mm. in the 17th century. Huh. So what he did was he pointed to um, earlier portraits of children, and maybe you're familiar with some of these in which children appeared as miniature adults. Yeah, a bit crazy. Right. So their their proportions are all wrong. Right. Yeah. Like with a real child, their head actually is yeah. like in a different proportion to the rest of the child's okay. body than an adult's head is in proportion mm-hmm. to their body. Mm-hmm. So to see a child as like with a tiny head, right. <laughs> is, mm-hmm. is, um, is odd and yes, kind of a creepy. creepy yeah. A bit creepy, yeah. Mm. Also, these children in these early portraits um, are dressed in smaller versions of very adult clothing, mm-hmm. which is also a bit um, surprising to our, our eyes. Mm. So, Aries said that prior to the 17th century, um, parents withheld affection from their young children Mm -hmm. because the mortality rate of children up to the Uh age of five was so high. So sort of why um, engage deeply and emotionally Mm -hmm. with young children when there is such a high likelihood of losing them. Crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. That'll be tough. You'll be glad to know that Aries has been thoroughly critique, yeah, critiqued. Yeah. Um, okay. And his idea is complicated by a couple of generations of historians now. Um, so there's lots of evidence that children were loved okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. before the 17th century. Um, but we do have him to thank for launching a new and now really flourishing field of study. Um, religious historians... Uh, have come quite late to the party, if mm-hmm. they've come at all. Mm-hmm. So there's um, lots of work still to be done, okay. which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. So you also asked, is it possible to understand yeah. how historical children thought and acted?
1: Yes, yeah, so aside we, from, yeah. aside
2: from what adults have yeah. written down. Mm-hmm about them or later in life about themselves. Right, mm-hmm. particularly for the whole idea
0: about bringing children's voice into something as opposed to just the yes. adult's voice about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, their voice yeah. and their words. That's, that's the trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, as you can imagine, there aren't a lot of children's manuscripts that have survived from the 18th century mm-hmm. um, or other historical periods. And most often when you do uh, locate children's manuscripts they survived for one of two reasons first either the child went on to become famous so in this sense think about the Bronte sisters Mm. juvenilia of the 19th century like gorgeous Mm. tiny books and and magazines that they wrote um in in a minuscule script Mm. these things have been preserved and you can see them still Mm -hmm. um so that's the first reason that a child's manuscripts might be preserved. The child went on to become a famous adult. The second reason is because a child might have died mm. um, before they grew up. And so their papers have been kept as a kind of memorial to this lost right. child. But children's manuscripts do survive mm. um, beyond even beyond those two categories. And I've had quite a bit of luck finding them as i worked in some vast multi-generational family archives um where like more was kept right often the reason for that would be um that a family stayed in the same house Mm -hmm. for centuries and so there was never you know the need that we face all the time to declutter right, um, yeah. Marie Kondo yeah. th- your life yes <laughs> Right, <laughs> or to think really carefully about what do I want to keep mm-hmm. if I have to pay to move it yeah. to mm-hmm. another country right mm-hmm. um, if a family stayed in a, a particular house for centuries and had sort of a sense of themselves as um, existing in in a longer family history then manuscripts were very often kept mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um in, in amongst those manuscripts, you'll find children's writing, mm-hmm. yeah. a child's hand. Child's <laughs> uh, hand, thank you. That means child's writing. Hand <laughs> writing. Child's Just to clarify. yes, not an actual child's <laughs> hand. Um, but even then, even with these multi-generational vast archives, it takes time and patience to unearth children's own writing. Mm. And... This hasn't been helped by earlier generations of historians and archivists Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, who for a long time took a sort of a great man approach to history. Mm. So the papers that were kept, the way that they were organized and described, um, the work that was done favored what these earlier generations of historians and archives considered to be important Okay. and invariably that did not include children right. or really women at all they were asking different questions um and keeping things according to the questions that they thought were important at the time yeah so and, and even in the way that archives are cataloged right often there is a finding aid um associated with a particular archive which allows the researcher to know um what is in the archive and where mm-hmm. to locate mm-hmm. things in particular boxes, right? But the descriptions have been made like the the descriptions in the finding aid are historical in themselves. If the archive has been in public archives in public hands for um, mm. for a while, yeah. How does how do you decide? How do people decide what to keep?
0: Like how do you? Because in the sense that you don't know if someone's going to become famous, so you just happen. You know, like so how? And how do we archive? How do we think about archiving now? As you say, we're we're moving around more. We're not staying in homes generations. Like, are we going to lose history? Or I don't know. As a historian, how do you think about um, preserving history and? And I'm
1: thinking of my own journals or things that i've written down i don't know my mom or parents have maybe kept a few of those but most of those probably a hundred years from now aren't going to be around no one's going
0: to be no one's going to be publishing your journal unless i'm unless you become really famous
2: (laughs) (laughs) no this is what i'm saying (laughs) right (laughs) the voices of the unfamous people in history Mm. Are important ones too, em- totally, totally right. So, we need your journal, too. T- we need your journal, <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. thank you. And, in fact, there are in a number of countries, um, systems that have been set up, uh, projects that have been set up to preserve the diaries mm. of so called ordinary people, which is like a category that I don't really like that terminology. What's mm-hmm. an ordinary person, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I mean, they have warehouses of diaries, and this thrills me as hmm. a historian. Um, it makes me cringe when people talk about decluttering or, you know, hmm. having um, arrangements with their friends to burn their journals when they right, die. Right. Um, I just want to implore them to think of future generations of historians yeah. um, so we don't uh, get stuck in a situation years from now where people looking back on our time only know about, you know, the published authors, uh-huh. mm-hmm. the the people in power, like prime ministers and presidents and yeah. um, people who've published a lot of books.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful. That's really good. Uh, I, I wonder when you say manuscripts, mm-hmm. like were that these children's manuscripts were they actual journals? Were they like scribbles? Were they dood- yeah. doodles? Were like what? What? What did? Mm-hmm. What? What do you mean by manuscripts?
2: Yeah. Um, they uh, children's manuscripts. Um, survive in a whole variety of ways um usually i mean sometimes full letters right Mm. full letters that they've written to maybe an aunt
1: or a mother letters how they used to communicate yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) no emailing no like emailing archiving you know like (laughs) that kind of thing it's like yeah yeah so letters survive um some diaries do yeah. Some children's diaries, and okay. they are precious, mm. um, trying to navigate some of the misspellings. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there's one gorgeous little diary uh, that survives that was written by an eight-year-old girl named Marjorie Fleming in the early 19th century. And to, to encounter her uh, spelling of words like Episcopalian and mm. Anabaptist um it, it's amazing. She's trying to navigate this religious mm-hmm. world, hmm. um, and in finding her own way with spelling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. But also, um, the study of historical children, like because the the manuscripts are so few mm. and far between, and sometimes only exist in fragments, perhaps pinned into an adult's diary, yeah. um, or tucked in, uh-huh. um, or you know, half a page has survived. Uh, that's like just loose in the archive. These are fragments. Mm. Um, a person, a historian who's interested in children, needs to be creative, really, in how they do their research and do their analysis, mm. because we don't have like mm-hmm. a forty-five year run of a diary and all of these letters, um, right. which we might encounter in the case of adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've worked with uh, books owned. By historical children, in mm-hmm. one case, a um, a library that was owned by uh, a sibling group, four siblings, and their their library from the 18th century has survived mm. in this like little museum out in the back of beyond, sort of um, in England, where I spent some very happy days. Um, and in that case, I was I was looking for how the child engaged with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, by writing in the margins mm-hmm. or, uh, writing over words to incorporate their siblings into the story uh-huh. or, you know, the poem on the page. Right. Um, so there's, there's that kind of yeah. material as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That we can use. Is
1: is it, uh, so I've heard you talk about, and, and others talk about this, this theory on history called child centered perspective yeah. on history. Um, like, is this kind of what you're talking about? The creative drawing out almost the the child's perspective instead of seeing almost through the lens of someone else, you're you're trying to gather actually their
2: their yes, perspective. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a child-centered perspective means placing children at the heart of a research and analysis. So my work, which I'm trying to understand, 18th century children's spiritual ideas and experience. I start first with children's words, drawings, experiences, wherever they can be found, mm-hmm. even in the yeah. margins of books, right. um, mm-hmm. in drawings, in uh, yeah, in a child writing in their mother's diary. Mm-hmm. By contrast, mol- most work on historical children and religion has explored what adults had to say about children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, what did John Wesley say about passing on the faith to children, mm-hmm. or what did children Um, What place do children have in Jonathan Edwards' theology? Mm -hmm. So those are Uh adult-centered questions because Wesley and Edwards are really at the center of the questions. The child, right, the child, is abstracted and nameless Mm -hmm. as if the child was some undifferentiated unity. Mm -hmm. Um, A child-centered perspective takes into account the varied lives and experience of children mm. while attempting, you know, to move toward some more theoretical assessments yeah. of children's past lives. And this is, um, this is more of a bottom up mm-hmm. yeah. approach to children and religion Yeah, and take seriously the idea that children had and really have agency. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It might be a limited agency, but children did, and they do act. They are not, only acted upon and you know if you know children you know that to be true (laughs) the same was the case in the past yeah yeah so in the study of historical children and religion the lens used is usually adults concerns to pass down the faith to children and one of the things i'm trying to parse out in my research is how children also had a trickle up effect Uh Mm. on religious communities
1: and so are you because you're looking at specific cases and in individual children are you then like um looking for patterns or uh, constants i guess you could say across yeah. the board like I, does that question make sense
2: yeah it does yeah i mean to to some extent mm-hmm. but i'm also very interested in the particular particularities mm-hmm. right. of mm-hmm. each child's yeah. experience right. um the way they articulate things mm-hmm. um And also paying attention to the context, even like the religious context, um, as well as other things of their lives. So is this a Baptist child? Mm -hmm. Is this a Methodist child? Uh, Um, Did they live in um, a mining town? Yeah, yeah. Will that affect the kind of imagery that um, comes into Mm -hmm. their diary and letter writing? Right, Right. Um, How do they understand... Uh Jesus or the yeah. devil, yeah. um, all of that, right. uh, so is played on, you know, yeah. their context plays mm-hmm. on, totally. on, on what they Definitely. conclude in those ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also children, children who wrote diaries and letters had some kind of, um, freedom in their life to do that. Mm. Right. Uh, first of all, they were illiterate, which is, you know, mm-hmm. that that becomes a, a subsection of mm-hmm. children in the past. Mm-hmm. Certainly, not all of them were literate, um, and also children worked hard yeah. mm-hmm. in the past, yeah. so they had leisure to write. Right? right. Yeah. yeah. So that tells you something.
0: You sort of you said that sometimes when you're reading things, you can figure out, oh, that's a Baptist child. That's a you uh, know. Um, Methodist child or whatever. Can we talk a little bit about the church? So in the seventeen hundreds, sort yeah. of what, like, what is the church doing that forms them, or what are we seeing? What are you seeing that's kind of forming them? Yeah. In terms of faith.
2: Yeah. At that point. Um, well, the eighteenth century is notable for children in a number of ways um, in terms of religion, and that this is the period in which children's literature really took off. Yeah. Um, so one of the things the church did for children was write books that for the first time really took into account children's abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, so a more simplified language, rhymes and pictures began to be used to elucidate religious principles. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, speaking to children as children in these books, giving them those, Mm -hmm. those things. Um, this is also the era, the 18th century, when the Sunday school movement emerged which enabled children of all socioeconomic classes to learn about God. And the first Sunday schools, I don't know if you know much about the history of Sunday Mm -hmm. schools, but um, the first Mm -hmm. Sunday schools were not the same thing as we think of today. Mm -hmm. Um, Sunday was the only day that poor children... Did not have to work long hours mm. in the home or fields or the mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm. so Sunday schools were established to teach working class children literacy, numeracy, mm. and the catechism. Wow. But it wasn't only religious yeah. um, on Sunday. Uh, and some of the earliest books for children show these lessons literacy, numeracy, and
1: catechism side by side. Mm. Mm. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation, but Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast.
0: Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know, share it with them, share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm -hmm. Second way, you could, you could, Give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realize that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening. And we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you.
1: So thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. So interesting the the um, the part in the even the literacy piece of how mm-hmm. children were being taught. Yes, uh, in the in the church and how we kind of like today take for granted that that reality. But for many children, that was a that was a place of I, I imagine solace because like you're not yes. you're not yeah. having to go to work mm-hmm. yes. on Sunday. Yeah, um, and so a real real refuge. Um, That the church provided. I wonder if you could also share um, about families within the 1700s. Like, similarly, obviously, the church had practices. They were developing Sunday school, but um, throughout the rest of the week with children, what were some of the practices, I guess, in families that helped form or inform? Uh, children of maybe their identity, of their faith, um, mm. of how they understood themselves and life?
2: Yeah, no, excellent question. Um, and this is where I find it very interesting to compare what was prescribed in published works addressed to parents and what was described right. in unpublished letters and diaries written huh. by children and the adults who love them. Mm-hmm. So, what was prescribed? by ministers and theologians, mm-hmm. who in the period were almost always men. Um, what was prescribed was a family circle in which the father presided over times of family worship, which included scripture reading and prayer and hymn singing. So as an example, Job Orton, um, uh, he, who was a 18th century dissenting minister and theologian, mm. he wrote that the "Quote head of the family, which generally meant the father at the time, um, had a duty to lead family religion, mm. and this included family government and discipline," he said, as well as. And I'm here. I'm quoting from Orton. The daily reading of the scriptures to the family, mm-hmm. and at sometimes, especially in the Lord's day, other practical books, watching over the ways of the household, catechizing children, instructing servants, reproving, admonishing, and correcting for their irregularities of temper. And conduct and uh, more regularity irregularities of <laughs> <Yeah>. temper <laughs> and conduct, <Yeah. laughs> and more, especially for sins against God. So the the father, the head of the mm-hmm. house, is looking out for these things mm. um, throughout the week. So that's you know the end of my quote. Or Orton. Um, so this is from Orton's 1769 book called Religious Exercises Recommended or Discourses on Secret and family worship, and the religious observation of the Lord's Day. Nice, nice pithy title. Yeah. You yes, know, just, yes. Yeah. 18th century book titles. <laughs> never, are, pithy. Uh, never pithy. Never <laughs> pithy. <laughs> so contemporary images, that is 18th century images of that sort of scene that I've just read mm-hmm. um, from Orton's book, that... Images often show a man standing at a table around which women, children, and servants are seated, Mm -hmm. heads bowed, and the man might be holding a book or have his eyes raised in prayer. So the posture Mm -hmm. of the different Mm -hmm. um, participants is noteworthy. Mm -hmm. And that might have been a scene that was enacted throughout the period, but it's not one that I've encountered in the archive. Hmm. Um, What I've found described in unpublished letters and diaries written during the period is something that's much more personal and relational. Mm. Um, And often women were involved in talking Mm. with children about God and about their devotional practices. Mm -hmm. And often such encounters were one-on-one enacted in conversation or through letters. Women taught children to write sermon notes in their diaries. So Mm -hmm. there are some stunning examples of, of young children Writing sermon notes uh-huh. <laughs> that right. have survived, yeah. interspersed with drawings of like horses right. and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, they they were children. Yeah, um, women taught children to keep diaries in which they took careful account of how they used their time, mm. uh-huh. and yeah. they guided children in reading so-called useful books. Um, uh-huh. Women also gave children books, and mm. uh, studies of book inscriptions. Historians do all kinds of yeah. things. But yeah. yes, there have been like thorough studies of book inscriptions of, of children's books. And these studies show that ants, more than any other relation, gifted books to children, hmm. which, um, I spent. I
0: sold a kidney to send some books back to my nieces oh, and on. nephews for over Christmas. Yeah, so as an aunt, Treasured. I see. Yeah, that's You're right. Treasure I, that. I can. I'm just carrying on that 17th century. Yeah. You know, like 18th century. 18th, century. 18th century. I always get that confused. Anyone else? Yeah. The old 1700s. 1700s. It's the 18th, 18th century. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so. Sorry, go on aunts. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, glad that you are that thank kind you. of aunt. I yeah. am that kind You're, of aunt yeah. too. Even when my sister told me when her children were young that children wanted toys for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Not books. Yeah. Um, too bad. I've I have gone on to become, you know, a historian and a librarian. Yeah. So <laughs> those children got books. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> um so the archive also shows that adults other than mother and father. Mm-hmm. Took right. lively interest in the religious instruction yeah. of children, and this includes aunts mm-hmm. um, and uncles, um, and it it might also include unrelated adults mm-hmm. who took children under their wings, establishing a sort of a pseudo parental role in a child's life. Mm-hmm. And I love encountering that sort of mm-hmm. experience in the archive. I find it wonderfully generous, love mm-hmm. and open armed. Right. Um, it's an open armed posture to kinship yeah. and household. That's really, really beautiful, and something that we, especially in the West, um, right. have a lot to learn yeah. f- from. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah the sort of the seeing that the the f- the formation and the kind of the care for children is more than just in the nuclear family. Absolutely. and Vice yep. versa, like the gift of children is not yeah. just for their parents. Absolutely. You know, and so the yes. kind of the cross, mm-hmm. yes, cross pollination. Sure. Those <laughs> Just go with that. Yes. Um, can we talk about Bibles? Yes, children's Bibles. Absolutely. Because the reason the reason I ask is people can't see this, but on the table in front of us are th- two very small Bibles and one small-ish Bible. It also has a very long title.
2: Yes, it does. Yeah.
0: Do you want to tell us, tell us a little bit about kind of maybe the first children's Bible and sort of and Bibles kind of created for children? Yeah. Do they have pictures? Yeah. How like what was the language like? Talk to us about.
2: Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question and one that stimulated some scholarly debate, uh, including by one of our alumni, Rachel Lukowski. Mm-hmm. So Rachel is currently doing doctoral work on children's Bibles, oh, cool. um, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Yes. Talk to Rachel about children's Bibles. Yeah. Podcast idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, scholars generally agree that the first uh, children's Bible was uh, from the 12th century. So... Wow. A very long time ago. Yeah. And it was used at a cathedral school in Europe. But it's uncertain how old the students were who used it. And there certainly were no illustrations in the 12th century. In the 16th century, Martin Luther um, included a kind of Bible for, for children, which he appended at the end of one of his other works. And this one was accompanied by charming woodcuts. Mm-hmm. Um but by the 18th century, everybody's favorite century, yeah. what we might <laughs> recognize as children's Bibles began to be printed in the UK and America. And oh. if I can just like, you know, describe to you these yeah. some of these gorgeous little Bibles that yeah. I have taken out of our rare book vault <laughs> um, climate controlled, climate controlled rare book vaults. Yes. Um, this is called a curious hieroglyphic Bible. Um, or, you know, it actually goes on full title, a curious hieroglyphic Bible or select passages in the old and new testaments represented with emblematical figures for the amusement of youth designed chiefly to familiarize tender age in a pleasing and diverting manner with early ideas of the Holy scriptures. Mm. To which are subjoined. (laughs) (laughs) Still still in the title. Still still (laughs) in the title. Yes. (laughs) Okay. A short account of the lives of the evangelists and other pieces illustrated with cuts Mm. or woodcuts. And so this this Bible uh, that we have is a 1787 copy um, of this book. And if I can describe it to you, um, some of the words are replaced by pictures so that the child has to sort of engage with the text to find, you know, to read it. Hmm. Um, so Noah sent forth a, and then there's a picture of a dove, Hmm. a dove out of the, and then there's a picture of the ark Hmm. that came to him again in the evening with an olive. And then there's a branch. Um, and so, uh, it's really quite fun. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes a bit spooky. Uh, yeah, the ones about death and and devils. Revelation
0: twenty was it? Was it Revelation nineteen or twenty one or something? Has a interesting
2: kind of. You're, you have an amazing. I memory. can't remember somewhere in Revelation there you read to us at one other point. So here is um, another page um, from Revelation that says there. The words are "be thou faithful unto," and then there's an image of a skeleton with a scythe. So. Death is pictured as the skeleton. And then the words, and I will give thee a, and there's an image of a crown. um, And then the word of, and an image of uh, a child blowing bubbles um, while stepping on a skull, um, Mm. which is meant to signify life. Mm -hmm. So be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life the images would um, help bring Mm -hmm. the the message home to the child.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And just briefly, if I may, the -hmm. the other two Bibles that I have here um, are called um, the Thumb Bible, a Thumb Bible, which was a thing sort of um, for many centuries, actually, beginning in the 17th century. So this this one is a reprinting from 1849. But it is... Really, a simplified the pages are very small, like the size of a child's hand, kind yeah, of. yeah, like two inches by two inches. Yeah. yeah, and there are maybe you know 12 words on a page, and just like little scenes in simplified words, simple words um, from throughout the Bible um, that was clearly made for a child. We also have what is called a finger Bible. This one is amazing. It's Cindy won't let us touch it, I don't know, because it's
0: about it's to fragile. fall apart and it, it has is, its own it's, special case.
2: It's, it's very fragile. It is literally the size of an index finger. Yeah. Um, so in that um, long sort of format as well, and it contains – the entire New Testament. So you can imagine that the the font is minuscule, and it you know aged eyes could not read this. Right. <laughs> yes, but this this little finger Bible
1: has been very well loved over the centuries. Oh, totally. They don't make them like that anymore. No, I can't imagine. I was looking know. for a small Bible the other day, and i I could not find one that this small. this
2: small. You wanted to just like side hustle, tuck it in your
1: yeah little back pocket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cindy, I wonder if you have any thoughts uh, looking, you know, at the 18th century Mm -hmm. and the way children were formed then, Um, maybe the communal aspects, maybe the the um, Bibles that were being formed and how children were taught. What elements do you think that we can learn from um, that century in Mm -hmm. our contemporary context Mm -hmm. in the formation of children Mm -hmm. and their faith?
2: I mean, I would say, mm. um, you know books that are written specifically for children mm. um so important that mm-hmm. children have books that they can treasure throughout right. their life that are their own mm-hmm. um, bringing them to church, like into church mm. also mm-hmm. like to be part of this um uh, multi-generational um family mm-hmm. really and then thinking about that as family like thinking about like widening widening um our understanding our expectations of who will be you know mm. can um who will, well, will influence- be part oh, of oh, part of, be mm-hmm. part of mm-hmm. the the spiritual mm-hmm. um education, Mm -hmm. nurturing of, of a child. Mm -hmm. So I I do not have children of my own, Mm -hmm. but I have 12 nieces and nephews Mm -hmm. and, um, I have very close relationships with, with some of them. I love all of them very much and have been involved in their lives Mm -hmm. throughout their lives. Um, pretty constant presence. And I've done that intentionally, but I've had, as they've aged, um, the relationships that we have built up mm-hmm. over their lives have led them to be like just really open with mm-hmm. me, and so I have such interesting conversations about faith mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. um, as they become young adults. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also have a goddaughter who um, I take that vow that I made to her to mm. to nurture her spiritually. Mm to pray for her in life very seriously mm-hmm. and um yeah i i am like linked to her life mm-hmm. in a way um, because i made a promise to her and to her parents um at the baptismal font yeah mm-hmm. mm. yeah
1: yeah oh it's beautiful it 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 really is i think a an, an important aspect there within this the uh, 18th century of the communal mm-hmm. embodiment of um, growing in faith both seeing uh, like growing in faith in the communal aspect with with children but also embracing how they can impact and inform our theology and our understanding of God just as Jesus did so absolutely. it's really beautiful mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely
0: yeah. Cindy, what are you working on next? So are you keeping on looking through archives and looking for um, children's hand? (laughs) Very nice. Writing. (laughs)
2: Um, (laughs) Yes, every chance I get, although the chances to do that are really dependent on me being um, being able to be in the archive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that requires me to go to England or to... You know the eastern United States. Yeah. Um, being a historian, I really have a sense of how new Vancouver is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there, there's. You know, we're still surrounded by forest here yeah. in right. Vancouver, right? Um, and have uh, a short history in terms of Western culture mm-hmm. yeah. here. So yeah, as as yeah. soon as I can, I'll get back into the back archives. to the archives. Yep. Yeah, yeah, trying to. Find these children, give them names, let their voices be heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Cindy, thanks so much for
0: doing that important work that I wouldn't do. Would you do it, Nick?
1: I would do it, but probably (laughs) I would probably not find as much joy in it as Cindy does. That's right. (laughs) I
0: I wouldn't enjoy being in the archives as much as you enjoy being in the archives. (laughs) And so we're glad that you do love being in the archives. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Cindy, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for talking with us. Pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this. Visit rgnt.net. That is
0: rgnt.net.